the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. And if you're just joining us this summer at Life Center, we are looking at some of the parables of Jesus every Sunday for the months of July and August. We're looking at the parables of Jesus. And parables are interesting because they're stories or symbols which convey a deeper meaning. But they're not just stories where Jesus is being clever or boasting his storytelling skills. There's a purpose that Jesus has in mind. And that purpose is to invite us to imagine a world that is different than the world that we see with our own eyes. And so in every story that we've read so far, there's something that Jesus wants us to see, to take hold of, to imagine a world that is ruled by the kingdom of God, by the rule and reign of God. And we are being called to imagine it, to embody it, and to, you know, enact it, to participate in it, to invite others into it as well. And our parable this morning is, a, is an interesting parable. It's a, a parable that, you know, really does uh, capture our imagination in, in a very different way because of probably where Jesus sets this story. And that he sets this story not just in this life, but in the afterlife, in heaven and hell. And as a preacher, I have found that there are, generally speaking, two topics that are the most difficult for any sort of preacher to preach on due to the level of discomfort that they bring to the congregation. And do you want to take a guess at which of those two topics uh, that, you know, those might be? Well, you're probably guessing the topic of hell and money. <laughs> Hell and money and good news both just happen to be in our parable this week. You know, when it came to talking about money and hell, Jesus never shied away from those two subjects, did he? In fact, he talked about them quite a lot. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he ever talked about heaven? And that money, Jesus talked a lot about money. In fact, one out of every three parables uh, have the topic of money or are about money in them. And, and when it comes to hell, while many on, in our, in our uh, you know, many us humans in our culture object on the reality of a hell on the grounds that a loving God just wouldn't send people to hell, you know, I think, and what we're going to see in this parable is that Jesus would probably be the first one to agree that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. That for Jesus, hell was certainly a reality, a physical reality, a spiritual reality. But hell was not, hear me today, God's decision to live without you. But hell is rather your decision to live without God. You see, God always honors the free will that he has granted us as his creatures. And when it came to the choice to whether or not God wanted to live with or without you, as a sinner, as someone who rejected, you know, our created in purpose, when it came to his choice, God made his choice, and his choice was to do everything possible in order for you to be with him, to have everlasting life with him. God made a way. His choice was you. He chose you. But ultimately, in this life, it's up to us to whether or not we will choose him and to live with him. And what I find so remarkable about Jesus is that Jesus, you know, he, knowing all that Jesus did, to, he came to this earth, he suffered, he was crucified, and he was buried. He did, he, God made a way through Jesus Christ, and he did all of that knowing that many would still choose to live a life apart from him. 
who would walk their own path and would reject his grace. And yet he came anyway. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, Jesus said, but the sick, that I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And to those sinners, those walking down a dangerous path marked for hell, Jesus gave both an invitation and a warning. And those whom he reserved his strongest warnings for were those who saw themselves as righteous in their own eyes, yet were missing the mark on what mattered most to God. And by far, there was a group of individuals, there was a a select group of people who Jesus saw as being in the greatest danger of walking down this road, of walking down a dangerous path, and they were known as the Pharisees, who Luke described as being lovers of money. And just like hell, you know, Jesus had plenty to say about money and the love of money. How one could not serve two masters. They couldn't serve God and serve money. That it was easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. What is Jesus meaning there? We don't know. But the point is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. That to store up treasures on earth, but don't, don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven and even... Jesus goes in so far to say in Luke's gospel to sell your possessions and give to the needy. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, note today that Jesus never condemned the rich. He never condemned anyone for having a lot of money, but he merely warned them of the dangers that one's riches presented to your soul. That when one's love for money overshadowed your love to do the will of God, you were walking down a more dangerous path than perhaps you or anyone else could realize. Because as Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and you're going to love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other, because you cannot serve both God or money. And it was that phrase, it was that teaching that Jesus gave, that is where our parable is set this morning. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Perhaps Jesus' most intense warning he ever gave about the dangers of money and the road in which a love of money leads. And in Luke chapter 16, if you have your Bibles in front of me, Luke chapter 16 contains two parables. One of those parables on the first half is for reserved for the disciples. Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples. And we're going to look at that parable later on in the month of August. It's probably the most confusing parable there is of, of Jesus' uh, parables. Because it seems like Jesus is praising the dishonesty of, of, a, of, a, of a, the person in, in his story. Which we'll talk about later on. But the other parable in this chapter is reserved for the Pharisees who were eavesdropping on this conversation Jesus was having with his disciples. It says in Luke chapter 16, 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus was saying, and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees, who were the religious elite of the day, had a very common belief that has prevailed through many cultures and through many, you know, generations. And that is that a person's wealth was or is directly correlated to how spiritual of a person you were. The more money you had, the more evidence there was that you were someone who was blessed and highly favored by God. 
You know, it's eerily similar to the wealth and health prosperity gospel that many of our churches try to preach today. And here you have Jesus. He's urging people, come into the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God. And he's warning those that if you're going to try to serve two masters, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. That you can only serve, serve God or you serve money. And if you serve, try to serve two masters, you may not know it, but you're walking down a very dangerous path. And all the Pharisees did was laugh at Jesus and mock him. And so what does Jesus do? He tells them a story. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 to 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have a rich man who's clothed in purple, purple being, you know, the color signifying royalty. And he's dressed in all sorts of fine linen. Fine linen was your underwear. And he's spending all this lavish amount of money on underwear, Jesus is saying. And so basically, you know, he's decked out in the equivalent of someone who's wearing all like Lululemon, okay? They're wearing Lululemon, top to, you know, purple Lululemon. And every day, this man dressed in Lululemon would feast and eat all the best sorts of foods. Now, a person's diet in this day was, you know, very simple. It was uh, bread or soups and fruit. And feasting would be something more reserved for maybe a religious festival or perhaps a wedding. But not this rich man, Jesus says. This rich man clothed in Lululemon, lived like a king every single day and ate like a king every single day. And then now you have this other man who was not rich but was poor. And every day his friends would take him, similar to the story of the, the, the friends who, who lowered the man through the roof in order to get to Jesus. They take this poor man and they lay him at the gate of this rich man each and every day, hoping that he would get some form of charity. All he wanted was the scraps that, you know, of the table, which, interestingly, the scraps would have been pieces of bread that, you know, they didn't have napkins in those days like we do. They didn't have the big packs from Ikea. You know, so what they would do is they would use bread, and they would wipe their hands on pieces of bread and then discard the bread. And that's what he was hoping for would be his meal. You know, the leftover bread, the bread used to sort of wipe the person's hands. And, and Jesus says he's a man covered in sores. So he's got sores all over his body in which the dogs would come and lick his wounds, which was humiliating enough, but he would even further, you know, prevent the wounds from ever being able to fully heal. You know, this man this, is experiencing the sort of poverty that rarely anyone here in Canada has ever been exposed to. You know, unless you've traveled or you come from a part of the world where this sort of poverty exists, it's just really hard for us as Canadians to really imagine or fathom a person in, in this situation. You know, one of the most tragic things that I've ever seen with my own eyes was visiting uh, a facility in rural Ukraine for disabled women. 
So handicapped women, women with mental and physical disabilities, because during the Soviet Union, what the, the government would do is that they would put anyone with these sort of disabilities outside of the city in these rural, rural facilities so that they were out of mind, out of sight. And what's really crazy is that there's people today who don't even know these facilities exist. You've got to drive about an hour or two hours outside the city to get to these facilities. And, and when you walk in, some of the, the locals are like, I didn't even know this place existed. I didn't know this was a thing. And as you can imagine, you know, these facilities, you're not really expecting them to be, you know, very sanitary, very nice. And they weren't, you know, one men's facility just had a bucket in a cage. That was their bathroom. One of the things we got to do while we were there was, you know, install a bathroom, a washroom, which was what, such a wonderful experience. But at this woman's facility, it was, it was pretty horrible. And what I saw as I walked into one of the rooms, you know, was something that has scarred me for life. Because in that room, as I walked in, there was a woman sitting in a cage, and she was sitting with her back to me. So if you were the me, I know she was sitting like this on the ground. And she had cuts all over her body and bruises. And she was there in that cage because she was violent and needed, you know, to be separated from the group. And she, her, she had the wounds all over her body. She was abusing herself, hurting herself. And she was covered in feces. You could just see it and smell it. And it was, you know, she knew we were there, but she could care less. You know, she just had her back turned acting like we didn't exist. And I just, you know, thought to myself, my God, like, what have we done? You know, what have they done? What have we done in our ignorance? You know, but this was the depths of poverty in which the poor man was in, in compared to the rich man who passed him by every single day to and from his gated mansion. He, he gated himself off from the world, and, and every day he would pass this, this man, Lazarus, to and from, but he would ignore him. But there's one thing that the, the poor man had that the rich man didn't have. Do you know what that is? Does anyone want to take a guess? He had a name. And the fact that the poor man in the story was given a name by Jesus while the rich man just was the rich man gives us our first clue as to what Jesus is doing in this parable. In fact, this is the only parable that Jesus said where a person is given a name. Most often it's just a man had two sons or, you know, a king this. But here in this parable, Jesus gives the poor man a name. And, and in a world where rich people are remembered and poor people, their names are forgotten, Jesus is inviting us to imagine a world where it is the poor who are remembered by God. His name was Lazarus, which means God has helped me, or the one who, whom God has helped. Does this say anything to you or I about who is known by God, whose name God remembers? Because what this tells me is that it is far more important in this life to, uh, for our names to be known to God than for us to know the names of God. You know, many know God's name, but what matters most is whether your name is known to God, whether your name is written in the book of life. I think one of the most haunting words in all of Scripture is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 to those he described as workers of lawlessness. He said, depart from me. I don't know you. But he knows this man. He knows this poor man. His name's Lazarus. God knows this man because this man has no one else in the world but God. God is his helper. And so in, in verse 22 to 23, it says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man died. He also died and was buried. And in Hades, or Sheol, which is the, the Hebrew word for the Greek word Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So here's where our story takes a sudden turn. You know, Jesus loves his, his plot twists. And so while the rich man feasts every day in ceremonial purity and Lazarus wastes away in the midst of his own filth, both men die. Which in itself should be a reminder that one's fate that there's one fate that both the rich and the poor share in this life, and that is death. You know, I know the musical Hamilton is right now in Ottawa. Some of you have seen it. You know, to quote Hamilton, death doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint. It takes, and it takes, and it takes. And when you die, and when death takes, no one ever wonders, have you ever walked by a tombstone, and you've read the tombstone, and you ask yourself the question, I wonder what that person's net worth was. No one ever wonders how much money you made after you die, except maybe your kids <laughs> or the government. They want to know, too. <laughs> they want to know how much money you had as well. But you want to know not how much money you have, but what sort of person you were. There's an old Jewish poem that, said, poem that says, Not to the grave can we take aught of our wealth or possessions. Dead men are equal in death, though God rules over their spirits. Common to all is their fate. Common to all is their homeland. All men are equal in Hades, pauper and monarch together. So both men die. But rather than end up in a place called Hades, which was the Jewish belief that after you died, now the Pharisees were believers of the resurrection. We know that there were not all the Sadducees. Why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were split was they were split over the, the question of the resurrection. The Sadducees believed that after you die, there was no resurrection. The Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection of the dead and that when you died, that you went to a temporary place known as Hades. Hades is not hell. It is a, is a resting place. It is a place, a temporary place of the dead while they await the resurrection. But rather than go to Hades, as was expected, both end up in a place that seemed rather permanent and final. Lazarus goes straight into heaven, it seems, while the rich man goes straight to eternal torments. Now, note, note this, that Jesus does not say that the rich man was particularly wicked, the only thing we really know is that he wasn't very attentive to the poor man's situation. Though it's not as if that wasn't socially acceptable at the time. And neither are we told that Lazarus was a good person or that he was particularly righteous. It's that he simply had no one to help him in this world but God. And Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side. You know, it carries this image of Lazarus, you know, being seated at the place of honor at a table, where Lazarus with Abraham is now feasting at, at the place of honor. He's feasting in heaven, a confirmation of the beatitude of Jesus in Luke's gospel, which says, blessed are the poor. Matthew's gospel says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke's gospel, which some people like to correct, no, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. No, Luke's gospel just says blessed are the poor. For they shall inherit the kingdom of God. For yours is the kingdom or the reign of God. Now, unlike Lazarus, who's lifted straight to heaven, the rich man simply dies and is buried. And this place, which Jesus labels as Hades, that what you would think would be as an intermediate state, does not seem that intermediate or temporary at all. 
It seems like that this rich man is in a place that is permanent, and it is a place where he's experiencing eternal torments. It appears to us that the rich man is in hell. Not awaiting judgment, as judgment has already been made on his life. And his eternal dwelling place is final. There's no way out of this situation for the rich man. And you could say that in the afterlife, the role of these two men has now reversed. It appears the rich man is now experiencing the same hellish existence that Lazarus experienced on earth, while Lazarus now experiences the same blessing and privilege that the rich man experienced on earth. So what does the rich man do? Verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." And so the rich man appeals to Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham, trying to remind Abraham that he has descended from this patriarch, that he's part of the family. He says, have some mercy. I'm dying here. No pun intended. Send Lazarus to help me, to relieve me of this anguish. Ah, so the rich man does know Lazarus. So he does recognize him, and he does know his name. And what the rich man wants in hell is for Lazarus to now help him, even though never once did he ever help Lazarus. There's no repentance, no sorrow, no feeling bad. There's only expectation that even in hell, he is still better than Lazarus. He is of higher standing than Lazarus. And therefore, it should be Lazarus who should be his lackey or his servant. But as Abraham reveals, a great chasm has been set. And that's what hell really is. You know, we don't really know a whole lot about what hell is or isn't. And no, someone who writes a book claiming that they've died and spent 30 minutes in hell is not going to cut it for me. I'm sorry. What we do know is that between heaven, which represents the place where God's presence is, the eternal dwelling with God, and hell, that there is no presence of God, that it's the complete absence of God's presence, that there is this chasm, there is this great distance, a great wall between hell itself and the presence of God. And it's why we as believers are called to live this life with such urgency in how we go about our daily lives but also why we are called with such urgency to invite others to to do the same. Because you only get one life. There's only one opportunity God gives you for the chasm that when you are born into sin is placed between you and God, that you have one lifetime to to close that chasm, to bridge that chasm, to close the gap. And again, remember, God has done everything possible and in his power to close the gap between you and him. But the choice remains yours. 
You know, C.S. Lewis really stressed this in his understanding of hell. And while there are some people who, who would say that his understanding of hell is quite controversial, you know, what he stresses is, is what we've been stressing this morning, that hell is not God's choice to live without you, but it's your choice to live without God. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, heaven is this ever-increasing further up, into joy, into God, into life, while hell is the opposite of that. It's this everlasting movement away from God. You see, God is always and forever moving towards you. But hell, on the other hand, is the self-plunging into our own misery and torment by rejecting the love of God and being all consumed with the love of self. Even in hell, the rich man is consumed with the love of self. He's ignorant to anything he did on earth, or rather what he didn't do on earth. And so while the rich man then, you know, tells Abraham, if the chasm's been set and I can't go there and you can't come here, will you at least go to my father's house and would you warn my brothers? Go back like Marley in A Christmas Carol and warn my brothers of the path that they are walking, because if they don't change course, they're going to come here and I don't want my brothers to, to be here with me. And, and, you know, I think on the surface, the rich man's idea seems logical. Wouldn't you agree? Like, if I was in that situation, I would say, I want someone to go warn my family and warn everyone. Tell the world. Tell everybody that this is real, that God is real. You know, have you ever heard that? You know, I would believe in Jesus if there was some sort of proof that all this is, is real. <laughs> I would believe then. You know, I would believe in that case. If I saw a miracle or if I saw some you know, sign with my own eyes that Jesus actually did raise from the dead, was raised from the dead. That if a dead man, the, Lazar, or the rich man saying, were to rise from the dead and he were to come back with a warning, an invitation, that there's a road which leads to hell. And there's an invitation because there's a road. Well, it's not as broad and as exciting. It's rather, it's more narrow, it's more smaller, but it's a road that leads to heaven. It leads to eternal life. Surely others would listen if someone came back from the dead. Does this sound familiar to you? Do you see what Jesus is, is, is alluding to, what he's leading to? Here's what he says, 27 to 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, and, and here's really where the point is sort of brought home. They of Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What Abraham is saying to the rich man is this. Even if a dead man were to rise from the dead, it still wouldn't be enough. Because if people won't repent based on the basis of Scripture, what makes you think that they would repent just because the resurrection of the dead has taken place? Because when your heart has been hardened to the truth... It doesn't really matter in what form that truth comes. Not even a, a man rising from the dead is going to be enough to convince someone from changing their ways. And so what then is the point of this story? What is the application? 
What are we to make of all this? Is this a story about the afterlife? Is Jesus telling us a story about the heaven and hell? And the, it's true, there's a heaven and a hell. Or is Jesus telling us about money and riches? Is this a parable about hell? Or is this a parable about money and the, the spiritual danger that comes with loving money? You know, I see this parable as a warning for those like the rich man and his brothers are those who believe that in this life that they can have more than one master. That they can love God and at the same time love something else. And in this case, it was the love of money. And why Jesus is warning them is because, because they thought that I, in this world, I can have both God and I can have something else. I can have money. I can maintain two masters that they might not know it, but they are walking down a very dangerous path. A path which leads not to God, but eternal dwelling. The very opposite of eternal dwelling with God, but an eternal dwelling apart from the presence of God. Where there's no presence of God. A place where there is an infinite chasm between you and God. And once you're there, it's final. It's permanent. There's no going back. You know, you've heard probably the expression hell on earth to talk about things like war or, you know, or where, where a woman or a child's been taken advantage of in just a grotesque, grotesque way. And, and what do we say? It's hell on earth. You know, sins that bring earthly torment. But at least the thing here is on earth, there's always the opportunity that where there's hell, on earth there's an opportunity for heaven. That there's an opportunity for redemption and for grace and for healing and for joy. The thing about hell is that in hell, it is, is final. There's no opportunity. There's no for redemption or healing or, or joy. It's final. It's permanent. There's no closing the gap. You can't bridge the chasm. And because Jesus loves you and I so much, he is warning us to repent because while you're on earth, there's still time. As long as you're alive, there is still time to close the gap. The rich man had time to do the will of the Father. Until there wasn't any time left. And the scary th truth is today that, is that no one knows when your day will come. No one knows today when that last breath will, will come. You know, all we know today is that life is but a vapor. A mist. God's word says you appear for just a little time and then that time vanishes. But that little time you and I are given is an incredible gift, isn't it? An incredible opportunity. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon him while he's near. You know, while God's near and while he can be found, seek him. Call upon him. Let the wicked, if you are wicked today and you know are wicked, if you, you measure your, your life and your actions by God's standard of holiness and you recognize that there is wickedness in your heart today, forsake it. Repent of it. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. That why? Why return to the Lord? While seek him, while he can be found, while call upon him while he's near? Because while God is near, that he might have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 says it's similar, but in a different way. It says, but as it is, he has appeared, Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. And so once we die, and we stand before God in judgment, it won't be that we are without an excuse. That's what Paul says in the Romans. He says, you won't have an excuse. There'll be nowhere in your heart you can plead ignorance. But I didn't know. The rich man wanted to plead ignorance. He said, if only someone would go back from the dead. They don't know. Just go back and tell them, then they'll know. But as Jesus said, you, you, had, you knew. You had the law and the prophets. You had the scriptures. Doing the will of the Father in Deuteronomy, it says, it's not a mystery. Doing God's will is not a mystery. It's not this, this great, you know, the mystery that we have to d- uncover in life. It's right there in front of us. It's written on the words of the pages of Scripture that you, the Pharisees, claim to know better than anyone else. And so what was the rich man's crime? In which way did he transgress against God? Was he guilty of being rich? You know, is Jesus saying that all the rich are just destined for hell and all the poor are destined for heaven? Is that what the story is saying? Well, in that case, you could say, you know, like, blessed are those who cannot afford a house, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, if you're Gen Z or millennials today and you haven't bought a house, you got good news for you today. You're going to heaven, baby. Blessed are those who have student loans, for you shall see God. <laughs> Though the rich man's sin was not that he was rich, and neither does we ever, was he an overtly wicked man. He didn't go out of his way to hurt Lazarus. He didn't increase his suffering. His sin was indifference. It was indifference that a person like Lazarus cannot be written off by anyone who has inherited the kingdom of God. In other words, he should have known better. Why did the rich man not inherit the kingdom of God? Because his love of self led him to neglect the very part of God's law that was near and dear to God's heart, the love for others, especially the others who are like Lazarus, who are like that woman in that cage, who lie at your gate, those who lie at your gate because the scraps on your table are the only thing that they are going to have to eat. Those type of people. And anyone who really knows God's word, if you know God's word, if you've read God's word and the word of God is in you, you cannot escape the heart that God has towards the poor and the afflicted. You know, this theme of the poor's exaltation and the humbling of the rich is a theme that runs all throughout Scripture, but especially in Luke's Gospel, Luke hammers this over and over and over again. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sung how God has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. We sang that this morning. I'm calling on the God of Mary, whose favor rests upon the lowly. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointing me to proclaim good news to the poor. That blessed were those who hungered now, for they shall be satisfied. The law of God and instruction was clear, that God's concern for the poor is to be your concern. That if God cares that much for the poor and the needy, then so should you. So today I just want to close with 
a verse that actually is found in the fourth book of Maccabees. Now, the book of Maccabees is, is not in the canon of Scripture. So it's not in your Bible, but for the Jews, you know, of that day, these, these scriptures would have been very binding, have been very authoritative. And I, I want you to hear what it says in 4 Maccabees 2.8 and understand that these Pharisees were without excuse. Here's what it says. As soon as people who love money decide to live according to the law, they are forced to change their way of life. Lending to those who ask without charging interest and canceling all debts in the seventh year. Those who love money, when they decide to live according to the law, they're forced to change their way of life. And so today, apply that then to the law of Christ. If those who love money or, or love anything, love of self, love of pride, love of lust, when you decide to live according to the law of Christ, then you are forced to change your way of life. You have no choice but to walk down a different path. No wonder why Jesus was so frustrated with the Pharisees. These lovers of money, they claimed to be the ones who followed God's law better than anyone else, who knew God's law better than anyone else, who honored God with their lips, but as Jesus said, their hearts were far from him. The point is this, wealth has no barometer of one standing before God. Good deeds have no barometer of one standing before God. One's words have no barometer of one standing before God. But your standing before God comes down to one thing, and that is relationship. Do you know God? But more importantly, does God know you? Does God know you? And that is simply the question that I will leave you all with today. Does God know your name? As Jesus was very clear, the one who knows me and is known by me is what? The one who does the will of my Father. That is how God knows your name. That is how Jesus knows your name. When you do what the Father wills you to do. Or as Jesus said in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what is the will of the Father in regards to the poor? To care for them to provide for them, to look after them, and not just charity, but to go beyond charity. You know, even the rich man let Lazarus have charity, but the call of God on your life is to go beyond charity. It's not just to give, but to see with your own eyes the conditions of those who suffer and to open the gate of your heart between you and those whom in this life are laid in front of you. So would you stand to your feet? In closing, I just want to leave you then with these two questions for reflection. Number one is, are you walking down the right path? You know, the scary thing is that there are people who are walking down the path and they just don't, the wrong path, they just don't know it. But they are not without excuse. Every single one of us will stand before God, and on that day, does, will Jesus know your name? Does God know your name? If Jesus were to walk alongside you on the path that you are currently walking, would he come with encouragement and say, keep going, keep walking, keep pushing, keep running that race? Or would he come with a warning saying, this is the wrong path? You're walking down the wrong path. But both are an invitation of his love, aren't they? Both are meant to steer you on the path towards righteousness, towards eternal life. And then secondly, I'll leave you with this. Is there anyone today who's lying at your gate? 
Is there anyone today who's lying at your gate? Who in proximity to you right now is someone you can go just beyond scraps of your table and really bless and show the love of God? Let's pray. So, Father, we, we come across another tough story today, Lord. A story that was to serve as a warning to those Pharisees, to those who loved money. And Lord, we, my prayer today is that we not be so ignorant to think that, Lord, that this, this Pharisee, the heart of a Pharisee, Lord, one who says all the right things, who does all the right things, but neglects that which matters most to your heart, Lord, that that spirit cannot be, that heart cannot be found in us. Lord, we, um, we just quickly repent, Lord. We repent, Lord, of any time, any moment we have neglected or looked beyond or ignored those whom were laid at our gate. Lord, perhaps you were the one laying them at our gate, and we didn't open the door. We didn't open the gate. Lord, we're so sorry. We Forgive us, Lord. Lord, today we recognize that as a very prosperous people here in Canada, Lord, we come very close to being like that rich man. Lord, we know that you didn't condemn riches, Lord, but I think we need to recognize as many people today, even if we make a very small amount, we are still in the 1% of the world in terms of wealth. Lord, that we have always the potential for danger when we have so much in our possession. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you with what we do with our riches. That we would serve one master when it comes to our riches. We don't need a second master. Money is not a master. Money cannot be a master, Lord. And so today, if there's anyone here today who's struggling in their hearts, recognizing that, yes, I have been serving a second master, today that they would just repent, they would leave that today, and that they would return to one master and help them not to return just in word, Lord, but to return in deed, Lord, by using our riches, Lord, to glorify you, to build the kingdom of God, and to care for those, Lord, that, that are closest to your hearts. Lord, just speak to us, and Lord, I pray that this parable lingers with us as we go, Lord, that it would not just be something we hear and think, wow, that's nice, Lord, but as we leave today, I pray that this parable would continue to just dwell with us in our hearts as we go. Lord, bless you today. Thank you today for the gift of eternal life. Thank you today that you have made a way that we can spend eternity with you. Lord, in this life, Lord, I pray if there's anyone today who hasn't reconciled, Lord, what you have done for them and the choice that they need to make, Lord, in order to be with you, Lord, for eternity, Lord, I pray that they would not wait. They would not hesitate. They would run to you, Lord, that they would close that gap, that there would be no chasm, Lord, between you and them, that they would accept Jesus as their Lord, they would invite you in to be their Savior, that they would repent of their sinfulness and acknowledge before you that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, if anyone's prayed that prayer today, we rejoice with them today and we celebrate them. May they just be affirmed today by our love and, and most importantly, by your love. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.